seminar. Treat it like a seminar. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It is. I am Damon. I am Kiss. And we are back with the Sawyer Seminar presenting Radical Care Real Alternatives. On the sixth and final episode of the Sawyer Seminar, we dive deep into a conversation about land, labor, and climate justice hosted by Teresa Cordova, who's the director of the Great Cities Institute at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's also a professor of urban planning and policy, and her work focuses on global and local dynamics and the impacts of global economic restructuring on local communities. She's joined by the wonderful and brilliant Jose Bravo, who's the executive director of the Just Transition Alliance. Jose is a longtime leader on just transition, climate change, and chemicals issues as they relate to EJ communities and labor. You really get a sense of the ways that he sees how the pieces all fit together, as well as the impact that he's having both as an advisor to the President's Council on Climate, as well as some work with the UN. We're also joined by Jose Acosta Cordova, who is the Environmental Planning and Research Organizer at the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, or El Vejo. Born in Chicago and raised in New Mexico, his work centers in the Little Village community here in Chicago, and he really breaks down how some of the global patterns and choices that Teresa and Jose Bravo explain have local implications in Little Village, across Chicago, and beyond. It's a great conversation and a great way to wrap up this Sawyer Seminar series. Thank you so much to our partners at the UIC Social Justice Institute for a wonderful partnership, and we're so glad that you got to learn from all these brilliant scholars, movement workers, and thinkers. So, with no further ado, let's get to this next episode of the Sawyer Seminar. Here we go. School them on stage like I'm doing a seminar, I'm doing a seminar, I'm doing a seminar. Welcome to the episode six of the Sawyer Seminar. Very happy to be here with my two favorite Jose's, Jose Bravo and Jose Acosta. This is an opportunity for us to talk about environmental justice issues, climate justice, the just transition, um, important moment in our history. We are, in a sense, at a kind of crossroads here. So I really appreciate the time that each of you are taking to be here um, to help share with us some of your, your thoughts and insights and, and expertise on, on these very pressing and, and important issues. We all know that there, there is climate change and uh, we, we see the severity of storms. We know that there are some pressing issues here. But each of you are very involved and have been for, for many years. So say bravo, I have the opportunity of knowing you now for, for over 30 years. Met you first in 1991 at the first gathering of the Southwest Environmental and Economic Justice Gathering. This was the same year of the People of Color Environmental Summit in Washington, D.C. And at that time, Jose Acosta, you were just a, a little guy three years old. So that was when you first met Jose Bravo. And here you are both uh, 30 years later doing environmental justice work. So at some point, I'm going to ask each of you about this intergenerational work. But Jose Bravo, you were at that first People of Color Summit that kicked off the modern day environmental justice movement. And there were lots of environmental justice fathers and mothers who were at that event, and many of whom, unfortunately, we have, we have lost and, and are with our ancestors. Uh, many others of you are, are still doing the hard work. And as, as I said earlier, 
um, supporting and collaborating with the, with the younger generations. Maybe you could speak a little bit the importance of that that summit. We're coming up on the 30 year anniversary of it. Yeah, so I mean, I can speak to it in a couple ways. Um, one is personally, and then the other is in regards to movement building. I think personally, it was the first time I actually had been to uh, such a gathering. The first People of Color Summit with over 500 activists and people from grassroots organizations throughout the country and even in the Marshall Islands and some other places that I had never even considered in the past, you know, in the sense of um, environmental impacts. So for us to come together in Washington, D.C., it was very important to understand that for me personally, that we weren't alone. There were other communities suffering the same kind of situations that we were suffering here at home. And that it really helped me to expand my knowledge on environmental justice, not to only personal uh, impacts, but also to where we live, where we work, where we play, and where we go to school. And for us here on the Mexico-US border, it's also expanded to where we cross the border. So it was really eye-opening for me. I think it was also a catalyst that really ignited the environmental justice movement. And we have made many, many inroads in regards to the work that we set out to do. Um, you know, we were fighting incinerators, toxic waste dumps, uh, uranium mining, um, even the issues around police brutality and the right to refuse experiments on, on humans in, in regards to the folks from Puerto Rico, in this case, women that were forcibly sterilized. So again, you know, our expansion of what environmentalism is really expanded my horizon. I think it expanded the movement's horizon as well to include things that a mainstream green groups um, never even contemplated. You came from a background of farm workers. Um, and a lot of your experience with organizing around the pesticides and so on that, that the farm workers are facing. That contamination is part of some of the same contamination, is it not, that's, that we now are having to deal with and is part of the contributing factor to some of this climate change, you know, the, those very contaminants? So my learning curve was pretty extreme <laughs> when it comes to pesticides. You know, my reality was that, yes, I, I grew up alongside my parents that worked in the fields here in Southern California, and we had a different perspective on what a pesticide was. My father, when he would ask for a pesticide or something, an herbicide, he would call for the medicine. He wouldn't call for the poison. He would say, traeme la medicina, which literally means bring me the medicine. My daycare at seven and eight years old was on top of a 500-gallon drum that was hauled by a trailer and a tractor that my father drove, and I sat on top of that. That was my reality. So we had a different perspective on pesticides. And, you know, lo and behold, when we came to the First People of Color Summit, we saw that people were actually being impacted by the legacy of pesticides. Some communities were built on top of pesticide dumps and there was high correlation to the pesticides in those dumps and cancer in children, birth defects, many other things. So again, you know, the learning curve was very extreme for me, but at the same time it resonated because that's the reality I came up with. 
And those are some of the very same kind of contaminants that are affecting Mother Earth, right? Mother Earth and the, the sacredness of Mother Earth was one of the first principles of the summit, was it not? Yes. It is some of the things that are still being impacting our communities. You know, I'll give you one example. Even though the U.S. has basically done away with DDT, it's still used in Mexico for vector control, mosquitoes and malaria control. Whole communities are still fumigated by DDT. And that's only in Mexico. That's the knowledge I have. But I know that it happens in other communities. And I think the link around climate with pesticides is that Ultimately, some pesticides uh, like methyl bromide used in the California fields on strawberries are part of the pesticides and chemicals that are number one ozone depleters. And there is no other alternative for these types of pesticides like methyl bromide because it's so effective at killing. The other piece around climate is that chemical production is probably the seventh largest user of energy on the planet. and the impacts to climate from just making chemicals is enormous. Uh, it's more than many countries put together and their impacts. So it's very important us, for us to address the links between chemicals, energy, and climate. Wow. And then the other link to that is that most of these chemicals come from fossil fuels. <laughs> you know, the fact that we are advocating for the immediate stop of use of fossil fuels basically means that we're taking on in the environmental justice movement some of the most powerful corporations on the planet and some of the most powerful countries on the planet in regards to their insistence and addiction to fossil fuels. There's so many things that you said that I want to, I want to come back to, um, not the least of which is it still is amazing to me that with so much contamination and, and so much uh, death and illness that comes from these contaminants, that there's still this lobbying to continue using these chemicals, even though we know it's having this human impact and we know that it's having this impact on, on Mother Earth um, and even our, therefore our ability perhaps to even live. So something else that you said that's important, um, one of the things that came out of both the, the work of the Southwest Environmental and Economic Justice Network, as well as the People of Color Summit itself and the continuing work has been that connection between where we work and where we live uh, and where we play. Um, and Jose Acosta, I know, for example, that your grandfather on your father's side was also a bracero worker. You know, and I often think of those images where they actually were showing spraying workers, right, with the DDT, you know, this sort of presumption that somehow they themselves are contaminated. Imagine then the sort of the, the long-term impacts or in short-term impacts that that had on on people's health. And I'm going to come back to you, Jose Acosta, too, on the relationship between workers and living, because the contamination in the community where you're doing your organizing, Little Village, which is a primarily Mexican-American neighborhood in the southwest part of the city of Chicago, you're dealing with a lot of contaminants from freight, truck traffic, former industrial sites, of which there are many um, in Chicago. And so there's still a lot of contaminants that haven't been cleaned up, as well as new contaminants that are coming from new kinds of industry. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you're seeing the relationship between where people work, where they live, and 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 where they play. Yeah, for us, you know, it's, it's um, something that we're seeing a lot, right, in, in Little Village, where this is an area that's been targeted for warehouse development, for 
transportation, distribution, logistics, facilities, right? And, and it's partly is related to historical industrial development in Chicago. This um, industrial canal was built back in the 1840s. Um, this was actually the first official logistics system in the country. And then this, this made Chicago a key area for the United States as, as the United States pushed westward and, and continued to colonize indigenous lands and bring settlers into those areas. So with the construction of that canal, you were able to take a boat from the East Coast, either through the St. Lawrence River or through the Erie Canal, connecting New York City to the Great Lakes, through the Great Lakes into Chicago. And then the, uh, the Sanitary and Ship Canal connected Lake Michigan and the Chicago River to the Illinois River, which connected to the Mississippi River, and then ultimately to many other rivers throughout the country and to the Gulf of Mexico. So this became a, a crucial area for industrial development. The railroads followed, uh, and then many industrial players followed as well, right? We had, the, of course, meatpacking and, and then steel. A lot of that contamination just hasn't been cleaned up. You know, you talk about Bubbly Creek along the, the south branch of the Chicago River, uh, which was once the dumping grounds for the Union stockyards where they used to dump animal carcasses and other stuff into the water. The decomposing bodies, you know, created the methane gas that created the bubbly effect at the surface, which is why the locals started calling it Bubbly Creek. Right. This has never been cleaned up. The company closed in the 1970s and were never held accountable to that contamination. Same with all the steel that you saw on the southeast side of the city. The deindustrialization of the U.S. and the, uh, you know, the Western powers of the world. And you saw the, the taking of many heavy industries to, to you know, what we call the developing world or the global south. Um, and that's when you start to see the rise of the movement of goods in the way that which we see it now, where areas like Chicago and L.A. and others in the country have just become hotbeds for the movement of goods, for intermodal rail yards, uh, for large seaports, and for this massive boom in warehousing that we've seen. More recently, um, this e-commerce aspect, right? The Amazons and the, the Targets and the Walmarts of the world. And then, of course, those warehouses, those all those those freight facilities um, are located predominantly in, in communities of color, predominantly Latino, Black, and Indigenous communities across the country. Who are then left to deal with the the uh, the pollution that's created from this system, and now transportation as a whole has surpassed fossil fuel production alone as the number one source of carbon emissions in the world. And because the two are interlinked, right? Because the transportation is also powered by fossil fuels, it all goes back to to fossil fuel production. There's this narrative that these warehouses and these other freight facilities are bringing jobs to our communities, um, and therefore we have to embrace these developments and. Uh, that's one of the things that we're pushing back on in working with with groups like the Warehouse Workers for Justice here locally, who, who are uh, really dismantling that narrative around uh, a warehouse job being a good paying job with benefits um, and stuff like that. So, you know, so in addition to the pollution and to the traffic congestion is also the, the labor aspect and the fact that these are not good paying jobs. These are jobs that are not going to build wealth in our communities. And these are also jobs that could potentially disappear as the, the industry continues to automate. We're seeing this not only in Little Village, but across the Chicago region. Uh, and this is because Chicago is the freight hub of North America, the only part of the entire continent where six out of seven class one railroads converge. And therefore, the point in the continent where the eastern railroads meet the western railroads. So this is a crucial you know, geographic point. Um, and that's why we're, we're seeing this massive boom in warehousing. I want to stay a little bit longer with this this relationship between jobs and the environment because both of you have really pointed to the fact that often the two get pitted against each other, that somehow we can't be about 
environmental justice because it's taken away from jobs. And I think your your comments point out that, well, the jobs themselves may not be uh, the jobs that are best for providing opportunities and, and so on and for employment. Um, Jose Bravo, I remember when you first start working with oil and petrochemical workers around and developed with them these, this concept of just transition, which was all about not dividing the notion of jobs versus environment. Can you speak a little bit about, about that issue and about the just transition? Yes, Teresa, I can speak to that. But first, let me just add another dimension to what Jose Miguel just mentioned. We have to have these discussions that we're talking about under the auspices of environmental racism. Because if you take a map of the United States and you look at the areas that have the highest concentrations of dirty businesses, incinerators, contamination, toxic waste, and you take the largest concentrations of people of color, indigenous people, and low-income people, and you superimpose those two maps, you see that they're almost identical. So for us, it was race as number one indicator of why we had to take on this issue of environmental justice. The second is income, because again, low-wage communities are pitted in regards to having jobs versus environment, basically. And then the, the third indicator that we like to use is political clout, that many of our communities are um, politically disenfranchised. And at the same time, many of the politicians that are elected do not put forth any kind of measures that would protect our communities. When we dig deeper into that whole map, we look at how our communities are composed. If you take a rich white community here in San Diego, like La Jolla, and their zoning is just strictly residential. Our communities across the board, if you look at communities throughout the United States, most of our communities are zoned industrial residential. That means that you can have a heavy industry that poses a toxic threat right next to our schools, our parks, our hospitals, if there's a hospital in our community, uh, but our daycares and a lot of other sensitive use. We see that as a very intentional process that took place, not only at the national level, but also at the regional level and at the local planning level. And when we approached these entities and said, hey, this is what we're living with, they said, oh, yeah, you know, we just want you to be closer to jobs. When we're talking about jobs, I think as people, as people of color, as low-income communities, indigenous communities, we have the right to have jobs that do not put our health at risk. The way to go about that is to make sure that those communities that folks are talking about rezoning or planning or putting other heavy industry in there are part of that decision-making table. If they're not, then it's an environmental injustice. When we move forward on the just transition, it was actually the workers from the Oil, Chemical and Atomic Workers Union that came to us and they said, look, we produce everything from a BB for a BB gun to a nuclear weapon, 90,000 chemicals and a lot of the energy as workers. This is what they were saying. There are literally things, things that we produce that should not be on the face of this planet. So how do we transition as workers ahead of that curve and make sure that there's a just transition for workers, make sure that workers are taken care of, 
when we came to this with the workers from the OCAW, Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, we had to push the envelope. And we said, look, we support union work, but we also support the fact that um, we're under a lot of duress from a lot of the legacy of the production from your places of work. So there needs to be a just transition for communities away from this legacy of contamination. And it could be local planning, it could be retooling an industry to make it a safe and sustainable type of workplace. But that decision has to come from the community and the workers. It usually comes from politicians who have no understanding of the impact and the legacy and what the legacy has caused our communities. So moving forward, when we look at a just transition, we have to look at a model of life cycle of production where we take into consideration this life cycle of whatever's being produced and any impacts to Mother Earth, any impacts to our communities, any impact to workers, and also want to move away from this cradle-to-grave disposable society to a cradle-to-cradle society. That means reuse and repurpose. So those are very important things for us to, to talk about. And there is no just transition that fits in a cookie-cutter approach. What a just transition might look like in, in Jose Miguel's community might not be the same that it looks like in South Central Los Angeles. So the communities and the workers have to come together and advocate for that process. So what does a just transition look like in Little Village? First and foremost, it's about just getting away from fossil fuels, uh, having you know things like renewable energy. There's a lot of potential for that. We have one of the largest industrial corridors in the city, uh, over 1,252 acres. So there's a lot of potential uh, space in that within that to do some really good things with renewable energy, um, or just overall green jobs, right? We have a, a community with a huge uh, food economy already existing, right? We have over 160 restaurants in the community. We have a huge street vendor economy. Um, so food production is a big one where if we had access to to space to be able to do large-scale indoor farming, right, that in a way that it's, that's, you know, quote-unquote sustainable, right, but something where we can kind of build those, you know, the, I guess what we would call the, the local and regional economies to scale, right, and, and being able to, to, to have high-quality produce and other food that's that's accessible uh, to our community, to, to residents. The fact that it's, it's indoors is a, cr- a critical element, too, because of, of the weather that we have here in the Midwest, right, we need to, we need, we need to have access to indoor farming, Um and there actually is an urban agriculture ordinance that was passed at the city level not too long ago that provides that, that you know, access in industrial areas. So, like, you know, with a lot of these old industrial buildings that are now vacant or that, you know, just haven't been reused yet or are being reused sometimes and, you know, converted into high-end housing, uh, we could be converting these instead into indoor farming. Um, so, I think food, the food economy is a big one. Um, and then just overall green manufacturing. I think, you know, with Chicago's history as an industrial center, not only in the U.S., but as, as one of the key industrial uh, cities in, in the world at one time, right, we have that history. We we have the really high quality labor force as well, where we can do some really great things around green manufacturing. And one of the examples that we're, we're starting to really talk about is these electric trucks that need to be built um, for the electrification of stuff and the transition away from from using diesel fuel for for uh, these semi trucks that are moving goods, right? So the logic is because we've created a system where we have to move goods across the world, you know, until we change that the economic system we're living in, how can we best reduce the harms of that 
Um, and although electrification isn't the you know end all be all solution, um, at least in the short term, it deals with the air pollution issue, right? So we know that the I-55 corridor between Chicago and the uh, one of the suburbs known as Joliet is one of the, the most contaminated uh, in the in the country in terms of of particulate matter uh, coming from diesel trucks and one of the busiest freight corridors in the country. So electrification is something that we're pushing really hard at the state level, at the local level. So how do we build those trucks is going to be crucial too, right? Who builds them? What are these new companies that, that are going to emerge, right? And, and who, who has access to that wealth? I think that's one of the biggest, the biggest aspects of it is too, is, is who, who gets access to the new wealth that's going to be created as we're building this new economy. And that's where we can really start to deal with the legacy of this environmental racism and you know, the way that our communities have been subjected to these toxic facilities is at least now what can we be a part of this new economy and how can we really benefit long term? Yeah, yeah, I'd like to comment on that. You know, what Jose Miguel is saying is is super important. I think we do have to change not only our mindset, but we also have to be able to craft our own solutions. You know, I support the building of electric vehicles and the infrastructure needed. I support retooling all of Detroit to produce mass transit vehicles instead of single family cars. And then I would push on the federal government to put money into creating the infrastructure for mass transit vehicles. Mass transit here in San Diego is really pitiful. <laughs> and it's nowhere near at the level of other great cities. Um, but the devil's in the details because as we move forward to electrify cars and other things, there's this mad rush at the moment for lithium. Well, that's a component that goes in these new batteries. So as a result of uh, the U.S.'s thirst for lithium, uh, countries like Bolivia are being bombarded by profiteers <laughs> and, and folks that want to mine all of Bolivia's lithium and lithium in other countries. So remember when I said that we have to look at the life cycle of production? If Instead of using lithium, we use batteries that are made of salt and electrolytes, like already being developed here in California at UC Davis. The last time I checked, salt and electrolytes were part of our bodies already. And they are biodegradable. They can be reused. They have a long shelf life. The reason I bring this up is because if we take the battery power that's needed in order to move to an electric society, <laughs> um, then that means that those lithium batteries are going to have to be recycled somewhere. Where do you think those um, recycling facilities will be? Do you think they'll be here in La Jolla or in Rancho Santa Fe? I doubt it. They'll be back in our communities. So we got to make sure that we reach for the best available technology that puts the least amount of harm on our planet, our mother earth, ourselves, and our environment. You know, I'll give you a really quick example. Everybody started moving towards weatherizing homes as an answer to climate issues, right? Because they said the better homes are weatherized, the less energy they will use. And the, the way that they did it was to promote vinyl windows so what we saw was companies in Louisiana around Cancer Alley and other environmental justice areas of communities 
actually expand their production of polyvinyl chloride, PVC, which is super dangerous. It also an, impacts the environment. It also impacts climate. And it's really unhealthy. It's one of the things that we call forever chemicals. That means our bodies don't dispose of them. Our liver and our kidneys can't do anything with them, so they stay and bioaccumulate in our bodies. We do have to be careful, right? If I buy a solar panel for my house, that panel would probably, at the moment, come from China. It would have to be on my roof two and a half years before it becomes carbon neutral. That means before it starts benefiting the environment. That's why we're pushing local and regional economies as well, as Jose Miguel mentioned, so that what's needed in Chicago is produced in that region, putting people to work in very sustainable ways and moving forward with this effort around our climate challenge. And as I've heard you say multiple times, um, Jose Miguel, is that with that kind of localized economy, you also put less pressure for a more widespread distribution of goods. Fewer goods have to go longer distances. I guess. That's, that's correct. There's all kinds of free trade agreements. There's the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And these institutions actually protect commerce and not people or workers. And the last time I checked, the owner of Amazon is a billionaire. And the people that work for him are not. They won't even have the right to unionize. So I think it's super important to understand that globalization has made the wealthy wealthier and working class communities bear the impact on environment and labor. Well, and that's one of the things I've always appreciated about the environmental justice movement, right, is that connection between the you know, global economic restructuring and how that plays out at the local level and what that then means uh, for people on the ground and, and for our communities. And, and that, that connection um, becomes really critical. Um, it's interesting when you talk about Bolivia, I think, um, Jose Mayo, you've also mentioned that Mexico, for example, has large deposits also of lithium. In the case of Bolivia, this was a place where people there passed a law protecting Mother Earth, talking about the rights of Mother Earth. It's tough to think about, right, the forces that you both are talking about that are making the solutions difficult. Now, I know that, um, Jose Miguel, at the local level, you interface a lot with the Chicago Environmental Justice Network and also some of the state and national around the Green New Deal. And Jose, I know that you're a senior uh, advisor to the council advising the Biden administration, and you're also involved in some of the conversations around what's happening internationally at the UN. What are some of those conversations um, that are happening, particularly as they relate to maybe false solutions that are being proposed? Um, what, what are some of those conversations? Let me go to you, Jose. It's an international, and then we'll come back to you, um, Jose Miguel, for a little bit more local stuff. There's several things underway. One is a process that's being called the Green New Deal. The other one is the 40% investment slash just 40 uh, being pushed by the Biden administration. And in discussions, I think that we're still having some concerns. There are some false solutions that are being put forward. I'll give you an, an idea of a couple of them. One is carbon capture. Carbon capture literally says that there's mechanisms, in this case, industrial mechanisms, that can take carbon and recapture it and repurpose it. The problem with that, it's a failed technology. <laughs> it still hasn't proven. They spent 
millions of dollars. Saskatchewan in Canada um, has spent tons of money and it's still not cost effective and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And, you know, it's a false solution because that doesn't curb the use of carbon. It just says use carbon and we might be able to pull it out of the air. Come on. If you don't think it's a false solution, you know, we can talk about XL pipeline. We can talk about line three at the moment, the fight around line three with all these oleoducts that are being put in place from Canada to U.S. and then in the U.S. Um, that piece is, is problematic. The other thing is that we see from time to time, nuclear energy rears its ugly head within these conversations. And I have to remind folks that are, you know, part of this process that, you know, there's still 15,000 uranium mines that are leaking uranium on Navajo land that haven't been addressed, that are posing a legacy contamination issue. And even though the Obama administration and other administrations call nuclear energy the clean energy, I would like them to convince those indigenous peoples at the front line of exposure to that because they're also targeted not only for the extraction of uranium, but also the depositing of nuclear rods once they're spent. So with everything that's happening, there's this UN process as well. And part of the UN process is actually trying to get its nation states to cut emissions down. And basically what is being done at the UN level is that the global north, such as us here in the United States and other countries that are industrialized countries, developed countries, as they're called in the UN, could maintain the level of contamination or actually increase it if expanses of land in the global south can be taken. In many instances, it's called the land grab, <laughs> um, where indigenous people are being kicked out of their ancestral lands so that mainstream green organizations could go and manage that land. So the Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife Federation could go and now, you know, be the caretakers of this land where indigenous people would, had resided in for thousands of years. That to us is what we call the neo environmental colonialism structure. Before they came for all the gold and silver, now they're coming for all the trees and soil. And at the local level, they're coming for your communities, Jose Acosta. What are some of the issues, the conversations that you hear with uh, some of the other folks in the Chicago Environmental Justice Network? Well, yeah, I mean, it's tough because on a, on a local level, what we're dealing with in the city of Chicago is, is the 100% embracement of all these new warehouses, these these TDL facilities, right? There's there's no consideration for the pollution that's being generated for the, the impacts on the neighborhoods. And and in fact our, our current mayor during COVID uh, actually included TDLs as one of the key strategies for, for recovery. So um so on a city level we're not seeing any kind of solutions being offered up. Um, they're all coming from the Chicago EJ network. And you know like I mentioned earlier, electrification is one of those and trying to go in towards more localized production of stuff, particularly things like food and other other things, uh, like we mentioned earlier, to reduce the need to import so much from other other parts of the world um, is a solution. But on a state level, um, one of the things that, that's happening right now, and it's actually been happening for many for several years now, is the negotiation around the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Um, and this is actually an act 
um, that my policy director and many other uh, environmental justice leaders and other uh, some of the other leaders from the Big Greens have also been working on for several years. And essentially, it's a plan that would phase out all fossil fuel sites in, in the state. So it would phase out coal burning plants by 2035 uh, and require transition to carbon free energy by 2045. Illinois is a state that generates about 30% of its electricity from coal-fired plants and 7% from natural gas and only 10% from renewables and 54% from nuclear power. So, you know, there's a lot of people who, who are proposing nuclear as a solution, right? And, and that's, of course, not a solution that we want to continue to, to see or continue to expand. Uh, but they are using the, the argument around jobs uh, and the loss of jobs as 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 reasons for continuing to hold up this transition away from fossil fuels. So currently it's being, it's continuing to be negotiated. Definitely big shout out to all the folks who've been working on that for, for uh, a long time now. And they've been making progress, but like I said, they're continuing to see pushback from the, the energy companies themselves and from many of the labor folks as well, right, who are concerned about the job loss. But I will say that there was recently announced that a coal plant operated by NRG up in Waukegan, one of the North suburbs, they would be closing in the very near future. So we are making progress, but we're still seeing a lot of, of you know, these traditional economic and industrial leaders um, that are really standing in the way of progress. Each of you have said so many things that I would like for us to, to have more time to talk about, whether it's from more on the localized economy and the issues around, you know, the who, the, you know, whether it's the corporations and how do we get policymakers and politicians to not only understand more deeply the issue, but also uh, be more committed to investing in the solutions. But let me let me end though by asking each of you something about the importance of the intergenerational organizing. Jose Bravo, we we both know a lot of folks who've been part of the movement for many years, whose children have continued to be part of the movement. So, you know, you've known this this young fellow here since he was was since you met him at the Southwest Environmental Gathering in 1991, and. What does it feel like to to be sitting alongside someone of a of another generation? And what do you what would you say generally about the importance of intergenerational organizing? My response to that, and responding specifically to Jose Miguel, you know, I think that he had the right set of parents. When your parents are in the struggle, it comes more natural to you, um, and it's something that's talked about at the kitchen table. So I think you know Jose Miguel had the benefit of that. To me, I mean, it, it brings special joy to see a guy that I remember would be running around the house and laughing and, and doing things, the travieso, like other, other kids. And now, you know, he's got his master's degrees. That makes me very proud. And I think that it's important for us, you know, I'll say it, <laughs> us old guys to actually pass the baton to people that can actually understand our language, understand our history, understand the impact, and understand what's going to be necessary to deliver our communities from the dangers and the impacts that we're talking about. I thank Jose Miguel for his work. And uh, sometimes, you know, I'm going to tell you, it's uh, you're not going to get a lot of pats on the back, but you'll be able to sleep much better than some of those corporate polluter presidents, believe me. And Jose Miguel, 30 years later, sitting next to someone who, whose idea of teaching you how to swim was to throw you in a pool. What do you think about intergenerational organizing? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I definitely appreciate it and, and echo what 
Señor Bravo said, man, and, and uh, like he is, he is one of the OGs of the movement, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's always an honor to, to know people like that and to have that relationship. And like you said, you know, he taught me how to swim, right? And, and every time I swim, I always think back to that time uh, where I got thrown in the pool and he's just yelling, just kick your legs, kick your legs. <laughs> it's an honor to be doing this work. And I think, you know, it's really important for people of my generation, right? Because we're the ones that grew up with climate change. And, and that's why it's so important to remember the, the work that's been done to get us to this point, right? And, and that's where the intergenerational thing for me is so important because we have to learn from those who've come before us their, their successes and also from the failures, right? And um, and that's how we we get better. That's how we continue to to do the work. And and also, there's many folks in my generation and younger who who think that this EJ work or CJ work just started, you know, in 20, 30 years ago, right? And and I always tell people like this is a 500 year struggle that we're talking about, right? Since the start of colonialism um, and indigenous people fighting to to keep their sacred lands from being degraded and, and, you know, extracted and all these resources and all that stuff, you know, the, the, the relationship between labor and extraction and, and, you know, capitalism and exploitation um, and then consumption, particularly in, in the global North, right? It all ties back to the 1492. So I think even those things, the historical perspective for me is really important because it also reminds me that this is a fight that still could take many years, could take a long time to, to, to really win. And hopefully it happens in my lifetime and our lifetimes, right? And uh, we still got we still got a ways to go, but I think we made a lot of progress, and and a lot of it is because of the work of the people that came before. So for me, it's an honor to continue doing this work, and I feel like my my ancestors brought me here for a reason. And like you said, I had really great parents that were able to to give me perspective on a lot of things from a young age. So this is why I'm here to do this work, and uh, and I'm de definitely you know plan on dedicating the rest of my life to you know to doing this work. So and the last thing I'll say is we're the only species that actively destroys our own environment our own our own habitat it doesn't make any sense to me you know so we need to change that and um and and for our generation this is the way we're going to survive we're thinking about the next generations too so definitely honored to be doing this work thank you and i see jose bravo nodding the whole time you were talking you know every time i hear the two of you talk i i learn so much so i'm so pleased and so honored that you both were able willing and able to take the time to be with with us here today we thank you so much, and we acknowledge the Mellon Foundation, the Sawyer Seminar. Uh, this has really been great, and, and again, thank you. Thanks, thanks, Jose Bravo from the Just Transition Alliance and Jose Miguel Acosta from the uh, Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. Much love. Much love to you, and I acknowledge you, Dr. Teresa Cordova, for all the good work. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.